This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. This is a podcast bringing you some of the conversations from this year's Idea Fest, a two-day event at the UW-Madison that brought together politicians, artists, activists, community leaders, and others to talk about big issues shaping our community, our state, and beyond. Today, what Trump wrought and what 2020 will bring. At this year's Idea Fest, Washington Post associate editor David Marinus led a discussion with an all-star panel of Washington Post journalists who reflected on the State of the Union in the age of Trump. On the roster for the talk was Alexandra Petri, a satirical columnist for the Post. All the things where everyone's like, oh, it's you have so much material. I'm like, well, that's not really joke material. That's people's lives being devastated and ruined. Catherine Rampell a policy-focused columnist. Again, how do you maintain this sense of urgency about things that we're told people should just ignore? And Carol Lennig, an investigative reporter for The Post. It is um, exhausting, and uh, I love coming to Madison so I can take a little break from it. All right, I'll let David take things from here. I hope you enjoy the talk. coming. Um, you know, I, I love Madison. Uh, as I've said before, it uh, saved my family and changed our lives, and I like to give back to it in every possible way that I can, and this is one of those ways. And so thank you all for coming and supporting the Capital Times and local journalism and ideas. You know, uh, I've been at the Washington Post for 42 years, um, largely by never being there, but still. (laughs) And I would say that it's in another golden age. And I can say that primarily because I have nothing to do with it. Um, But these three fabulous writers have much to do with it. And I'm really excited to have them in Madison, in my hometown, and Uh, to bring their humor and wisdom and insight uh, to all of us. On the far side, Carol Lennig is a world-class investigative reporter. Uh, I don't know if she has room on her shelves at home for all the Pulitzer Prizes she's won. Um, She's devoted her career to uncovering things that the government doesn't want uncovered. And over the last three years, she's been at the heart of the Post's Uh, investigations of Trump and Russia and has also been involved in in investigations ranging from uh, Jeffrey Epstein's apparent suicide to the corruption inside the NRA and many, many other incredible investigations over the years. Catherine Rampell, closest to me, is a brilliant economics columnist who really knows how to cut through the government fog and uh, to to understand the economy and the social fabric um, using data in very accessible ways. And among other things, one of of the moments I enjoyed most, uh, along with all of her columns, was her fabulous takedown of of the uh, sort of faux economist Stephen Moore when he was nominated to be on the Fed. Anybody who watched uh, Catherine go on TV with him, it was really quite amazing. I should also say in a self-aggrandizing way that um, among other things uh, that I'm proud of is that I, Catherine was in my class at Princeton University Uh, 14 years ago when I taught a course on literature and fact. And at the end of that semester, I said to these students that I would take them anywhere against anybody else. 
Um, they were that good, and one of the main reasons for that was Catherine. Uh, in the middle, Alexandra Petri, um, who uh, has Wisconsin roots, as many of you know, but that's okay, she's on her own. Um, she grew up in Washington. Her dad was a congressman from Wisconsin, Thomas Petri. And I consider her um, my favorite satirical writer, the best in America. Uh, I, I was thinking about it, and I, I sort of thought she was some uh, combination of The Onion and Mark Twain. Um, <laughs> but it's really not fair to compare Alexandra to anyone else because she's, she's singular. And uh, she makes me laugh out loud, which I don't do that often. And yet and feel enraged at the same time at the things that she's revealing, the depravity of, of our government and our system. And also, nobody can write about bedbugs the way Alexandra did. <laughs> we might talk about that later. So these three writers come from very different worlds of the Washington Post. Two are columnists, one satirical, one economic, and one investigative writer. And so... Um, they can elicit different uh, insights in different ways, and I'm not going to ask Carol to pontificate about things more, but to illuminate because of her reporting and, and all of that. Um, but my first question to all three of you really has to do with the, the, uh, the context of newspapering in this climate. What is it like um, to get up every day and deal with this world of Trump? And what are the most difficult aspects of it? What are the most exhausting, interesting parts of it? Carol, you go first. Happy to. Um, this is something, Dave, that I've been really anxious about. And uh, I think our editors are starting to rally around the idea that we're essentially in a um, almost like a foreign correspondency. Foreign correspondence at the Washington Post, because it is truly hazard combat work, um, take three weeks off or six weeks off every several months. And we're getting to the point at the Washington Post where the people who are covering the White House and the Trump presidency are like foreign correspondents. They are wearing down to the nub. I thought that we were really busy during the 2016 campaign and that it was relentless. Um, people were wearing down then, but it it is as if the pace of news um, has accelerated in a, um, I don't know, my daughter knows math and I don't, but, you know, it's just been an amazing algorithm of increased intensity. Part of it is the president himself. I mean, every day he wakes up thinking, how do I control the morning? How do I control the news cycle? And we have a duty to follow that. But there's plenty of other things to do besides follow his tweets or his announcements or his most recent firing and dismissal of someone that is disputed. There is a lot going on, and um, we used to have this thing. It's a very nice, um, very antiquated tradition called the Weekender, and the Weekender at the Washington Post might be something you would write for the Sunday paper and spend two or three weeks reporting out. Now my colleague Phil Rucker and, and Ashley Parker at the White House will write that story in four hours. It will be everything that's happened that you need to know about the moment Bolton was fired, everything you need to know right now about the most dramatic thing that happened 72 minutes ago. It is um, exhausting. And uh, I love coming to Madison so I can take a little break from it. <laughs> Thank you. Catherine? Um, I will say one of the big challenges is that I primarily write about policy, and it's always difficult uh, to get eyeballs for policy writing, but it is especially difficult, I would say, right now, given that there's always the shiny object, the crazy Trump tweet or whatever, um, and getting people to focus on what Trump is doing in addition to what he's saying. And, of course, what he's tweeting sometimes is sudden new policy, so it's not like they're completely uh, separate realms, but there's just so much going on um, administratively, regulations that are changing on the environment, um, on uh, reproductive health, on uh, health care in general that people aren't aware of, and finding a way to um, make that stuff a little bit sexier um, because it really does affect people's lives and their livelihoods. 
uh, their ability to pay the bills, their ability to get a doctor, et cetera. Um, finding ways to get that to rise to the top is very challenging in this news environment. Alexandra, I mean, you know, you've got so much material, but on the other hand, it's like it's writing itself, but you yet find ways to write it in fresh ways. How challenging is that? Well, the funny thing, I remember before the election, I wrote this column that was like, so we can either maybe do something on November 11th, or I will be in a bunker underground just and every, there will be lava flowing everywhere. And it turned out it was the second option. And I always said that sort of this would be a great... I, I would like a snow globe where the Trump presidency was happening, and I would like not to have to live in that snow globe. Because I think all the things where everyone's like, oh, it's you have so much material. I'm like, well, that's not really joke material. That's people's lives being devastated and ruined. So it's like... On the one hand, it's completely absurd, but on the other hand, so little of it is funny. But everything is so heightened because Trump is this exciting black hole around whom time dilates, you know, and you're like approaching it. And suddenly every week is about 80 years, I want to say, just like approximately. Um, And so you have this dilation of time and you have all of these people, these best, brightest people pouring all of their thoughts and energy into what's essentially a vacuum. And... Anyway, it's a great time to be alive and certainly a great time to be trying to write humor. So. <laughs> Which you do wonderfully. How does the being called an enemy of the people affect what you do? And the whole notion of fake news and all the attacks on the press. Uh, it, it is a very stressful time because, you know, I know why I got into the business, and I know why most of the people on my team, um, a political investigative team and enterprise, we got into it because we thought, you know, it's um, providing information upon which a democracy can act, um, upon which a republic can act, if you prefer that sentence. Um, we wanted to have impact by providing that information. And now we provide that information and uh, a little less than half the country writes to us in diatribes and expletives saying that we are um, lying about the presidency and we are making things up to try to hurt him and take, take down the president. And for a while that was... Um, disheartening, and now we're moving into the mode of, you know what, we just have to provide the information, and now we have another job in addition to the exhausting piece of this treadmill. The other job is explaining to people how we do our job. If you don't believe that we're gathering this carefully, accurately, truthfully, rigorously, scrupulously, then I'm going to show you. I'm going to I'm going to tell you how we got the information. I'm going to tell you as best I can, woven into all of the stories, um, why these anonymous sources do, want anonymity. I'm going to explain to you the documents we relied upon. I feel like that's a new level of detail that I didn't really have time for, but I'm going to do it because, and, and my colleagues are doing it, because we can't let somebody or some entity or some political group decide that they're going to um, ruin our access to providing fact. Do you do that in the story itself? Increasingly. I mean, not as well as I would like because we're scampering to actually do the stories. I'll give you one example that really set the mark, which was David Fahrenthold's. Um, we kind of tease him mercilessly. David, as you may or may not know, broke the Access Hollywood story. He did that that amazing story because everyone knew he was covering Trump's charities during the campaign, and a source found him, an anonymous source, and sent him that information. Uh, but all before the Access Hollywood tape, he would have these yellow legal pads like my father had scattered around the house. And he would write down what he was gathering, what he was learning about Trump charity events, and he would tweet those images so readers could pile in and help him. And we tease him and we're like, you know you didn't really use those legal pads. And he goes, no, I really did. Um, uh, But I think we need to show or else... um, someone's going to steal our ability to to communicate directly to the public. Yeah, and he does it on tweets, and he's doing it today, I think, right? That's right. His latest uh, attempts. Yeah. Um, 
along with uh, the attack on uh, the press is, is the, the attack on facts. And Catherine, I know you've written uh, extensively about that and the, the diminution of statistics and, and science and fact. And uh, I think in your last, latest, one of your latest columns, you related that to the Sharpie incident in the National Weather Service. Right. And so this is a good example of what I was talking about earlier, sort of what is the distracting thing that everybody's focusing on, uh, the entertaining thing, the thing that's uh, easy to understand, it's telegenic, Trump doctoring a map with a Sharpie, um, versus what else, what else is happening in that episode that actually has uh, a lot of significance in terms of um, our government infrastructure and our ability to respond to matters of uh, public safety. And so in the case of Sharpiegate, it wasn't just that he doctored the map. Uh, also, we now know, thanks to reporting from my colleagues, that there were orders from the White House effectively to get the NOAA scientists, and the, uh, in particular the National Weather Service um, Birmingham chapter scientists, in line to get them to back down and say, no, 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 um, we were wrong, Trump was right, there is going to be a hurricane that, uh, that hits Alabama. Um, and this is really problematic for a number of reasons, of course, uh, including that um, this is part of a broader theme within this administration of attacks on expertise, attacks on statistics, attacks on data, uh, that, you know, it, it, it's not just about, oh, this is a silly thing that he did, and, and, and look how, um, how defensive he gets. It also means that it hollows out sort of our infrastructure, uh, if in fact there are um, are people who get fired. Uh, in, in this case, it looked like it was the political appointees whose jobs were at risk. But there have been effective purges elsewhere within the government that have not gotten as much attention. So there's the Economic Research Service at the USDA, which is um, a small but mighty statistical agency, an independent statistical agency. They produce a lot of data on crop forecasts, on um, cost estimates, on uh, how we think about managing risk for our farmers. They produce research on climate change, on food stamps, on various other things that are sometimes politically sensitive. And because they have produced things, produced research that has proven politically inconvenient, it got the attention of the administration. And the administration decided that they were basically going to purge everyone there by announcing a sudden move away for, of the agency away from Washington, D.C. to a lo location to be determined. Um, eventually, it was to be determined somewhere in the Kansas City area, and people had, oh, I don't know, 30 days to decide whether they were going to either move or lose their jobs. Um, and something like 80% of the people said, I can't uproot my family, especially not on that time frame. So you have uh, a number of statistics that are supposed to be published by statute, um, that cannot be published and that farmers rely on and the ecosystem around farmers, uh, you know, all of the other industries that rely on, on agriculture also relies on that it's up in the air. It's unclear what's going to happen. In the case of uh, Sharpie Gate and, um, and the uh, meteorologists and, and other scientists who work within NOAA, even if their jobs are not directly at risk, you might imagine that their uh, ability to speak freely about whether there is an accurate threat, you know, whether there is in fact a risk of, of a catastrophic climate event, um, a weather event, um, th that might be diminished going forward. And again, even if, even if none of those things happen, even if people don't lose their jobs, even if meteorologists do believe that they can speak freely about the accuracy of risks, there's also um, a, a sense of credibility that's lost, right? We know that the risk um, that there are a couple of risks when it comes to warning the public about a potentially dangerous weather event. One is not telling them when the event happens. One is overwarning. And that, in fact, we saw um, one of the most um, uh, deadly tornadoes on record uh, in Missouri a, a few years ago was so deadly precisely because Noah went back and looked and they said that people had become desensitized to, to tornado warnings. So there are costs uh, to 
this kind of nonsense. It's not just nonsense. These are actually life or death decisions that are being affected by these attacks on the credibility of uh, our statistical agencies, the statistics and other facts that they produce, and the scientists themselves. Alexandra, um, can satire exist in a world without facts? Well, actually, I have a funny story about this, which is <laughs> so. No kidding. In, <laughs> she has a funny story about everything, folks. <laughs> well, so in I think twenty early twenty seventeen, I wrote what I thought was pretty obviously a satirical piece about how the headline was something like Donald Trump's budget is perfect and will fix everything that's wrong that's with right. America by punching it in the face, <laughs> or something like that. Some real subtle headline that I thought, well, no one, no one can mistake this uh, for a real news story if that person has a modicum of sort of sensibility, not sensibility, that's like a Jane Austen thing. Uh, you know you know the thing that I mean, sense, sense. Um, and little, shortly after it published, it got sent out by the Trump administration in their morning newsletter as a example of favorable coverage in the Washington Post. <laughs> and so I briefly became real news, which was really exciting for me. Because uh, the you know people were calling me up. They're like, "How does it feel to be real news?" And I'm like, "Well, this is my dream." Uh, but it really was not very subtle. And I kept so now I'm subscribed to the daily 1600 briefing because I want to see am I going to make it again? Because I keep doing the same headline <laughs> style, and so far nothing. And they're all just sad headlines from the Washington Times saying Donald Trump is flawless and has done nothing wrong. Which, unlike my headlines, are unfortunately I think in earnest. So the trouble is that it's sort of like Poe's Law, where there's a point when satire is indistinguishable from somebody who really means it, who just is not joking. And on the internet especially, these things can collapse. And one of the problems you see where a lot of the people who are sort of using hateful, uh, just saying awful stuff on the internet, is when, when prodded, they always say, oh, I was joking. Oh, can't you tell it was satire? And it's like... How was it satire that you were just yelling a slur at people? That doesn't seem satirical or particularly illuminating in any great regard. But it's interesting because the, there's been this sort of collapse of the borders of, I think, once you have facts starting to melt, then you get this Dali-esque landscape where the clocks are sort of mushrooming and uh, it becomes difficult to write jokes. So whenever I write something, I have to think, well, what if someone took this seriously? What would happen? And hopefully I, I write it in such a way that at the end of it, even if you went into it thinking I maybe wasn't joking, you'll come out of it realizing that I was, but sometimes not. I get a lot of emails. There, there was actually a, an example of this, not, not from um, Alex earlier this week, but from, from somebody else. So when Bolton was fired, I saw a number of people on Twitter make the same joke, which was congratulations to acting national security advisor Mick Mulvaney. Um, because Mick Mulvaney always has like multiple cabinet posts that he's holding somehow simultaneously. Um, and then later that afternoon, I think, somebody reported that Mick Mulvaney has effectively been serving as national security <laughs> advisor. So it's like, I don't know how, how Alex manages to, to continue to write successful parody in a post-parody world, but I, that is a testament <laughs> to her. Well, the trouble is you can't just do your usual like, exaggeration. Like, what if we dialed this up to 11? Because I think there was a thing where they were saying, well, this judge can't possibly rule on this because he's Hispanic. And I'm like, man, next they're going to say that female judges can't possibly rule. And then they said it. And I'm like, well, <laughs> so you, you, can't, you can't just do that. You have to figure out like what's... So I don't know. I've been reading a lot of sort of horror lately and just... Going No, because I'm like, what other tools can we use than just sort of saying, what if this but more? Because Jonathan Swift, everyone would be like, this guy makes wonderful baby. Like, buy some baby from this man. He's making baby recipes for all of us to eat babies. Like, I don't know. I think a person advocating for eating the Irish children, as Jonathan Swift famously did on the Internet today, people would just take him up on it. So, um, <laughs> You know, your experience, I bet you have another good question. I'm sorry. No, no, but, no I want this. But your experience reminds me so much of what a dodo bird I felt like when I came back into the newsroom. I took a 
a relatively short book leave to write about something way back in, you know, the la-la land of the Obama administration. Um, and I came back into the newsroom probably a, literally around the time the Trump Tower meeting broke in the New York Times. You might remember it's like July, post-July 4th. I remember I came back after that. Anyway, we had a story and I had a tip when I was back in the newsroom that uh, the president had dictated this phony statement about what happened at the Trump Tower meeting. And the Times had done such a good job in breaking the fact that that meeting occurred in the 2016 election. You know, Jared, Manafort, uh, Thank you, Don Jr. Get this meeting together with a Russian lawyer to talk about sanctions. The Times like nailed us on that, did a great job. But we had a tip that, um, you know, the president had made up the, the phony statement. He was the person on Air Force One who said, this is what my son is going to say about the meeting and leave out the part that it was about the campaign. It was just about adoptions, not about the campaign, not about policy. So we were chasing this story, and I had really good sources about it. And then another source said, you know what? The president has been talking to lawyers to consider whether or not he can pardon himself. He wants to know, can he pardon his family members and can he pardon himself? So it was part of this string of reporting. Anyway, long story short, in the Clinton administration, in the Bush administration, in the Obama administration, I have been misled. I have been given information that omitted important facts, that spun things, blah, 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 blah. But nobody's actually like directly, factually lied. The day we went with this pardon story, meaning we went to the White House and asked them for their comment, they absolutely 100% directly lied. And I said, whoa, to my team, we can't, we can't publish the story. The president basically said this is false. And everyone looks at me like, are you out of your mind? Welcome. <laughs> um, we go, I'm like, no, I'm not comfortable. We go to more sources. I, I, I said, I'm not ready to publish. The president's saying it's wrong. We gather more information, and I'm like, wow, well, this is just undeniably true. We say we're going to publish. The White House spokesperson says no comment. We publish. The next day, the president tweets and says, yeah, I did it. What's wrong with it? <laughs> like the sand is shifting under our feet. That's really... But the whole notion of the government lying... Um, it's been taken up tenfold in this administration. And I think the press's response to that has been interesting to see the evolution of the verbiage that, that the press is now able to use when somebody's lying. And how has that, how has that evolution happened at the Post where you can now say the President of the United States lied? I think we've been really um, conservative. In, and you're right, it is an evolution and it's not perfect. Um, and luckily, it's guided by Marty Barron, the best editor in the country. Um, we've been very, very slow and cautious to say lie. But we have gotten there in, in key moments where it's um, undeniable that it's intentional and that um, it's knowing and it's false. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. You know, I when you were talking about uh, parody and satire and how it's uh, everything is really serious that you're writing satire about, the one uh, issue that you had that it's floored me twice when you've written about the rampage of guns. Um, because in that instance, obviously, Alexander, you made a decision that this is something that requires something beyond parody. And, and you've written, you know, in, in ways that made me weep you know, about it. Well, I, I think it, I'm not going to be, I'm one of those writers who I'm, I'm best on the page, so I apologize for the somewhat incoherent distillation. No, of you're my doing great. Thinking on the issue, <laughs> the, the wild. We all are. But I think, <laughs> yeah, it's 
usually, like, usually I sort of go by the Oscar Wilde sentence where like life is far too important a thing to all, ever to talk seriously about it. But this is one of those things where I just hope that we keep treating it with the respect that it deserves. Where because the temptation in so much of this stuff is that like the first day you see a man covered in pitch uh, summoning crows from hundreds of miles away to him on his lawn and screaming in a voice that predates time you're like this is very strange and we should notify someone and then the second day he does it you're like well probably someone's been contacted and then the third day you're like oh there's fred it's probably thursday um and so trying to maintain the sense of horror about things that are truly horrible i think is one of the tasks and so because it's hard not to develop a callus when something happens this often but you can't develop a callus because it's just it's a devastating and horrible thing. And like, I don't know, life is so precious and beautiful. And the idea that sort of we're slowly picking away at all of the things that make civilization beautiful. Like there's this whole Chesterton thing where they're like, he's like, what are the benefits of civilization? And someone is like, well, we have clocks and we have this chair and we've got, and like he's becomes incoherent just because everything around him is like, this is so wonderful. And I feel like our places of worship and our movie theaters and just being able to go somewhere with people and be welcomed in there and not have to walk through like a medical metal detector in order to go to a baseball game. These are just beautiful, precious things that we've worked really hard as a society to have. And those are the things we'd rather give up instead of thinking, can we have a more sane attitude towards guns? Even though like uh, the majority of people want to have that and have that more sane attitude. So it's just incredibly frustrating and depressing and makes me both of those things. So I, I have difficulty writing jokes about it. And so I don't write jokes. I just write, but yeah, F fix guns. <laughs> and Catherine, you wrote a, a very powerful column sort of entitled, What Are Republicans Afraid Of? Because they base everything on fear, and yet what is the thing to be most afraid of they, they back away from? Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's I, I don't know if the, the right way to describe it is as ironic or as, like, totally predictable <laughs> in the sense that the kinds of... The, the, the sense of urgency, the sense of fear that um, Alex was just talking about it's out there. It is something that the Republican Party has captured. They've just sort of redirected it into other realms, right? The things that we should be afraid of are socialism, um, are immigrants, are the Muslim hordes, you know? These are the things that we're supposed to be afraid of, whereas the actual things that are threatening American lives, oh, nothing we can do, you know? There's just nothing to be done about guns, nothing to be done about climate change, which I talk about sand shifting, um, you know, used to be a hoax, and now it's it's not a hoax, it's it's real, but it's not man-made. Okay, maybe it's real and man-made, but it's too expensive to do anything about, nothing to be done. I guess we shouldn't be afraid, we should just move on. Um, and, and other things that affect people's lives and that they are quite fearful about, including if you have some sort of life-threatening medical diagnosis, are you going to be able to afford the bills, uh, afford the care that is required to treat your illness? I mean, these are things that Americans are, are genuinely afraid of and have good reason to be genuinely afraid of. And yet, um, that's, that's not where you see one of our two major parties focusing their efforts. It's all about displacing those fears onto these scapegoats, um, these, these imaginary threats uh, of, again, the, the socialists taking over and the immigrants taking over. So it's, uh, it's hard to sort of figure out, again, how do you maintain this sense of urgency about things that we're told people should just ignore uh, without sounding like you're the boy who cried wolf. And it's like, well, if, you know, if, if civilization didn't come crashing down after the first however many hundred um, mass shootings, if civilization didn't come crashing down after all of these other um, climate-related cat catastrophes or all of our people not being able to afford their, their health care or what, whatever it is, um, you know, I guess we should ignore it. Policymakers aren't actually there to set policy. They're there to just spew rhetoric. Carol, I think it's like 40, yes. <laughs> some 40% some, some or 43% of the public 
considers the NRA a terrorist organization in some recent poll. Um, you've done, among the many things you look into, you've looked into the NRA a bit and it, the corruption inside it. Do you see any evidence that it's finally collapsing or weakening or the, its hold over uh, the public is definitely gone, but over the Congress can change as well? You know, um, the you're absolutely right about your stats about the American public and how they feel about the NRA and how they feel about the sentiment that Alexandra brought up. Um, people are devastated by the idea that we're going to have pizza parlors where kids are going to get shot and movie theaters and and elementary schools where kids could be shot and we've got to make a plan for hardening elementary schools now. Um, I, I would like to say that public opinion guides and and has had an impact on the NRA's power, but really what's impacted the NRA is its own self-dealing and its own um, malfeasance and misconduct. I say that because there are um, there's a very large board of the NRA, and we examined some 70 members who were getting contracts or kickbacks is the wrong legal term, but we're getting benefits from the NRA. You can't govern an organization and certainly not a nonprofit if you're getting money from it. There is also a wealth of investigative material about Wayne LaPierre, the NRA's chief executive, um, and and basically the, the lord of the entire NRA, the person who makes all the decisions. There's a lot of information about his high-flying jet-set lifestyle that's been paid for by the NRA. And now um, a lawyer who you'll learn more about soon in our pages who's representing the NRA, a newcomer, whose bills are um, eating the NRA alive. You you would think that the public pressure to try to protect children in elementary schools would weaken the NRA, but it's really the NRA leadership that is weakening the organization. And um, many of its chief lobbyists and champions and anchors have either been ousted or defenestrated in some way because of this um, uh, internal strife about the spending that's been going on inside. Um, as a personal note, I'll just say that, you know, I don't take a stand on whether the NRA should have this policy or that. But as a reporter, I do remember um, Sandy Hook very um, poignantly. I'm always called to make phone calls in the wake of a mass shooting, and it can get kind of exhausting. Um, but I always do it because I have, like, that mom voice that goes, hey, I really want to talk to you about so-and-so who may have shot up this entire, you know, factory, and I'd like to know what happened to him. Um, On the day of Sandy Hook, an an editor called me and asked me, could I come in and make calls? And and it was the first time I said, no, I can't do it. I had a first grader that year, and every picture that came up, I was just like, I'm going to cry on every call. I I do cry on these mass shooting calls, and I'm not embarrassed about it, but I don't think I could have, I don't think I could have done it. This morning, uh, I was riding my bike home from the Hotel Red where they're staying, and the sandhill cranes flew overhead. And, you know, what a beautiful thing that is. And then my wife, Linda, walked down to Lake Wingra, and there was a whole covey of monarch butterflies uh, on their way south. And she just came back and said, what a beautiful world. Um, And it is a beautiful world, and yet... We're destroying it, or some people are trying to destroy it. Um, Catherine just wrote a column called uh, Make Water Dirty Again. <laughs> Tell us about that. So I think that the Trump administration and Trump surrogates love to talk about his stellar economic record um, and that uh, love him or hate him, maybe you don't like the tweets, maybe you don't like the throwing babies in cages thing, but, you know, you can't deny that he has had this um, great impact on the economy. He's unleashed untold growth, except there are a number of problems with that statement, including that, for example, growth this year is going to, is expected to average, uh, to, to, to reach about a little over 2%, which is what it averaged during the second term of the Obama administration. So, woohoo! <laughs> you know, we spent 
$2 trillion in tax cuts to get us to exactly where we were before. Um, and, and then the other issue is, well, what is the actual evidence for this claim that Trump's policies are so great for the economy? I mean, we, um, this audience, I'm sure more than most, knows about the destruction that his trade policies, for examples, have wrought uh, for farmers, for manufacturers, for retailers, and others. And then there's this sort of third bucket. There's the tax cuts, there's the trade wars, and then his, there's his deregulatory agenda, which gets a lot less attention. And the deregulatory agenda um, is, much of it is sort of based on what I would say is a false dichotomy, that things can either be pro-environment or pro-business. And so the strategy for boosting the economy through de deregulation is just get rid of all of the regulations that protect the environment. There are a number of examples of this. So this week, for example, um, the Trump administration rolled back the clean water rule, which uh, relates to basically what the EPA um, uh, considers um, bodies of water that you can pollute into without getting a federal permit, including streams and tributaries and, and, and smaller lakes and wetlands. Uh, they rolled back that policy back to what it was in 1986. Um, not exactly a high watermark, I would, no pun intended, uh, for environmental policy. Um, they have rolled back a lot of other environmental regulations that basically make it easier for power plants to dump more arsenic and lead into the water. Um, they've rolled back policies that, uh, that restrict how much methane can be released into the air, that allow the use of a pesticide that causes brain damage in children. Um, and I guess the real question is, so, like, let's say you do value economic growth and you think that on, on balance, the benefits of, uh, of getting rid of these kinds of policies could outweigh the costs. Like, who, are there really so many businesses uh, that are so critical to the U.S. economy that are, would only be able to stay in business if they can dump more arsenic into the water? You know, like, it's just, it's hard to imagine that the kinds of policies that we're talking about would, even if you minimize their costs, would have the ability um, to unleash this untold economic growth. I get that there are probably a few businesses out there that are going to make a little more money if you uh, say you don't, you no longer need a permit to dump toxic waste into the local wetlands. But it's just hard to see the connection from point A to point B. And there, there are a lot of other policies that are not within the environmental realm, I should add, where it's also similarly difficult to understand how they could have the kinds of uh, growth-enhancing benefits that this administration has claimed would be, is happening, again, even though the numbers show otherwise, or could happen some, at some theoretical date in the future, you know, making it easier for companies to cheat their workers, for example. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other uh, cases that they've had. But anyway, if, if you can see what they've done on deregulation. And again, it's just very difficult to understand how you would see the kinds of effects they're claiming. And we're almost getting to the point where, like, the companies aren't even asking for this. They're like, here, do you want to be able to hire children as chimney sweeps? They're like, no, we don't want that. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, from, like, 200 years ago, like, in California. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so what is it, what's the purpose? To have a brag sheet? What's the goal? I think some of it is, again, they just, they think, like, it, it, if it's bad for the environment, it must be good for business, even though there are businesses that are saying otherwise, in the example of the, the cafe, car industry. The car industry, yeah. right? The car industry said, no, please don't. Um, roll back your fuel efficiency standards. It's going to cause a lot more uncertainty for us. They made a deal with the state of California, um, and now the Trump administration is basically weaponizing the Department of Justice to try to get an, an antitrust investigation against the car industry. So, you know, the businesses that they allegedly want to help are, are saying no. There was a similar example with the mercury rule, mm -hmm. I want to say. Um, and there was another environmental, I'm trying to remember, oh, the methane, actually the methane rule. And they renamed the methane something fun in like the, they put out something being like, it's particles of freedom. And I'm like, this is very Bush era. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was still... Yeah, well, I mean, a, a lot of fossil fuel companies want to be able to say credibly that natural gas is a 
clean or at least cleaner alternative to other kinds of fossil fuels. And if instead the Trump administration is saying, no, make it as dirty as you want, please, up the dirt, you know, <laughs> um, it, it kind of ruins their case in the long run. So, yeah, it, it's, I think, to answer your question, I think it's partly um, just like sort of a, a facile understanding of the dynamics here. It's partly just like anything Obama did, we want to do the opposite. Um, which is, not, you know, a theme not unique to their environmental agenda. We've also seen it with trade and with a number of other realms, um, the Iran nuclear deal. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's like own the libs, I think, is the, is the policy. That's the, that's the only underlying theme that I can see. Carol, this summer I was able to spend a week with uh, Mona Hanna Atisha, the great pediatrician who exposed the Flint water crisis. And I know that a decade, full decade before that, you were part of a team that saw the same thing happening in Washington, D.C. Tell us about that and what you saw, why that happened, and what you learned from it. And now happening again in Newark. Um, You know, it's funny. um, This is just like a, okay, I'm going to use this question to do my show, the reporting feature, as quickly as I can. in D.C., we had I was teamed up from time to time with a great reporter, and he David Nakamura, and he got this tip that uh, yeah, I love this. The way I say this is going to offend a lot of people in the room, but a crotchety old man who kept all the documentation that came through his mail and all these notices. He was reading the fine, 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 fine print with a magnifying glass, and in the fine, 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 fine print from the D.C. water utility, there was a reference with three little asterisks that said, you know, this is a problem because uh, these we elevated beyond the lead and copper rule EPA NSD 121517. He looked it all up. I'm making that up, but you get where I'm going. Anyway, he, David got this tip. The city had been um, selling water that, had ele- that was at elevated lead levels, and he found out that it had been going on for months. Then we found out when he, he uh, we joined a group of team put together and found out that actually it had been going on for years. And I will never forget um, a, I guess you'd call this person a whistleblower now, but it was just a good old-fashioned public servant who called me after our first story broke that it had been going on for years without any notice, to no, no effective affirmative notice to residents. In endangering pregnant mothers, endangering toddlers and infants. Um, and he said, you need to look at the city's change in basically water disinfection. Their change in water disinfection and their water treatment caused this lead problem, not lead pipes. Well, that's really what happened in Flint. And that's really what's happening in Newark. And nobody is sort of it's like we have to learn the same thing over and over again. It's, it's insufferable to watch. In Flint, they had a change in their water source and their water treatment. It was cheaper, what they were doing, using the particular water source, and it scoured lead that is in every plumbing fixture and every piece of solder. It's not because one city has more lead pipes than another, although there are some that do have more. It's about scouring the metals out of the pipes and the equipment. And that's what's happening in Newark. They changed the disinfection. And, um, and again, everyone has to learn it all over again. And I don't really know why. What's the column you write, Alexandra, when the world comes to an end because of all this? Well, I, I don't think I'll be there to write the column. <laughs> It'll just be so long and thanks for all the fish, kind of. <laughs> Although not the fish, I don't know. I, I'm not as partial to fish as I guess Douglas Adams was, um, but I don't know. It has it has been a beautiful world, and it's been nice to be alive. Like like some of the things, like you know, plastic straws are terrible, but I will miss living in an era with them because they were so convenient while they lasted. Um, <laughs> and you can buy them on the Trump website. <laughs> I have a question for the audience or somebody who's in charge of this. I'm embarrassed to say I have no clue what time it is or how much time we have left. I think we got about 10 minutes. 10 more minutes. How do you know that? I got a watch. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in, 
in some important ways, I think that um, along with all of that awful stuff, we're in an era of reckoning in terms of equality and, uh, you know, in, involving so many things, the Me Too movement, um, you know, dealing with uh, women's rights and, and gender equity, and um, but still in all these enormous fights. And uh, Alexandra, I'm going to turn to you again because I, I, you wrote a column called I'm a State Legislator and I'm here to substitute teacher biology class. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that says it all. Yeah. <laughs> I figure it's always the people who know the least who are the most excited to tell you about your, the subject on which you spent decades becoming an expert. Um, and it's like, well, I have lived experience of being a woman. They're like, no, but listen, I've heard that the womb wanders through the body and makes you hysterical. And it's on this basis that I have now outlogged yoga pants. And <laughs> I, it's funny because I think it's, it's a sadly recent discovery that women are people. Um, you, you would think that this had been sort of around for a while, but like if you go back to the ancient Greeks, they're like, no, they're probably a different species, and they have three mouths, and it's all very confusing, and they do ololuga. Or I was reading this whole thing about women's voices in ancient Greece, because this is what I do for fun. Um, but the point is, the delusion that women aren't somehow people has been a persistent one that's lasted for a long time. And I think one of the positive things of being alive now is that it's... It, suddenly people are looking around and be like, man, things are bad now. And it's like, no, no, things were, historically things have been bad for a very long time. And we've been sort of sitting on them and be like, well, we fixed it. There's all these things that we sort of thought, I'm like, well, growing up, I was like, well, maybe we fixed feminism in like the 60s, the 70s. There was some point where they just fixed it. They did it. And I can just be anything I want to be. And then I had to keep moving through the world in woman mode. And which was what I describe it when I'm just sort of trying to go about my day and suddenly someone treats me as a woman instead of just as a person. And it's the most frustrating thing in the world. And so trying to gradually sand down all of the things that keep people from just treating people like people is hopefully that's going to be the optimistic legacy of this time period is being like, hey, things haven't been perfect for a long time, but now we see the rot and we can try to cut it out and do something about it. And so seeing it is at least, I think... That's a real gift because there's this old Norse mythology. Sorry, now I'm going off a real. We're Keep really, going. So <laughs> there's this idea. We're with you. We're like in pure gent is like you can get troll eyes and suddenly you can just you don't see the world as it is. You'll see this beautiful world, but it won't be the real world. And it's it's a wonderful gift. And I think you can choose. Do you want to live in a world that you have access to real facts and data and the things that you're scared of aren't real things and the things that you see as beautiful aren't really beautiful? Or do you want to see sort of the ugliness of the world as it actually is and be able to improve it and live in a real place? And I think that's the crossroads we're at now. Do we want troll eyes or regular eyes? And um, I hope we pick the second option. <laughs> but... <laughs> Catherine, on a more serious note about women's issues, you wrote a, a column on economics saying women's issues are economic issues and economic issues are women's issues. Uh, can you explain that? Um, yeah, so I, if I remember the piece uh, correctly, <laughs> it all blends together at some point. Um, I, I think what I was talking about was that a lot of um, issues get sort of uh, segregated. It was paid family leave. That you yeah. yeah, they they get they get segregated as things that like only ladies should care about. You know, this is what they discuss in the powder room when they all leave the table at dinner simultaneously or whatever. Um, whereas, in fact, um, these are issues that affect families, and these are issues that affect what uh, economists wonkily refer to as human capital formation. Um, and labor force attachment. So in the case of paid family leave, for example, this is, you know, there are like lots of bleeding heart reasons to think that mommy should be able to spend time with their babies because their babies are cute and whatever else and family values and all of that. And all of that stuff is, can, can be true, is true. Um, but also there are economic consequences to not allowing or, or not guaranteeing the right for uh, not just women, but parents more broadly, to be able to have protected time um, in which they can take off from work 
their jobs will still be waiting for them, where they can bond with their child, uh, where the long-term, um, you know, brain development and, and other things are, are, will be enhanced because there is that protected time, because mom or dad um, isn't stressed about uh, being able to pay the bills in the couple of, couple of weeks, couple of months after the child is born. Um, and that the, in the case of women, there's a, a fair amount of research to suggest that they're more likely to stay in the labor force, right, afterward, if they choose to do so, right? I'm not talking about mandating um, that, uh, you know, not, not saying that we dictate what people of either gender decide to do in terms of um, uh, child care versus work or some combination of the two. I'm talking about choices, right? And that if you protect the ability for women in particular to return to their jobs, they're more likely to be able to return to their jobs and not just quit altogether because otherwise, what's the point? Uh, and it's true not just for a paid family leave, but that other, you know, supposed women's issue, child care, right? Child care is incredibly expensive. I believe in most states now it's more expensive than, like, college tuition, which is just nuts, right? Uh, and that if, if you don't make it possible for families to be able to have the choice of getting help so that um, either parent or both parents can continue to work on whatever terms they, they wish to continue working, then you're going to have parents dropping out, disproportionately women, dropping out of the labor force. And all of the human capital that you have invested in those women, and women are more likely to go to college now than men are. So there's you know, arguably more human capital that is being invested in women. All of that basically lies fallow. And so I think we need to rethink how we talk about these kinds of issues. They're not just women's issues. They're not just family issues. These are economic issues. I mean, you can, you can call it uh, a women's issue, but it's, it's still a, a line item in the household budget, right, when you're deciding about how you're going to pay the bill for child care or for a babysitter or nanny or, or whatever or how you're going to make those kinds of uh, household decisions. It's, it's not just about the woman. It's not just about the family. It's about how does all of this interact with the local economy and, and the broader economy. Carol, why don't you end this? Um, I think, Alexander, are we getting near the end? Yeah. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is a positive note or a depressing note, but you spent many years investigating the whole Russia-Trump connection and it sort of got somewhere and then sort of people got exhausted and so where are we and where are we where is the where is congress going is there going to be an impeachment um what do you see happening and where where is it all um i could be proven wrong on this however i would say that i don't see impeachment proceedings happening um Pelosi has put her um, foot down on this, Nancy Pelosi, speaker, on the argument that the public is um, weary. The public is not behind uh, electing, in her case, Democrats based on more investigation. Mueller's investigation and report was um, kind of, I, I don't mean to be dismissive of it, but it landed with a bit of a thud because so many people were anticipating that it would find uh, criminal wrongdoing by one person or another, or that it would be really clear, like a slam dunk description of um, high crimes and misdemeanors. And that was not the way that he proceeded. He decided not to decide whether or not there was criminal conduct. And all of you who followed the news carefully, if you're in this room in this beautiful day in Madison, and then you followed the news carefully. Um, uh, you know, he decided not to decide. He decided it would be improper and unfair to accuse the president of criminal wrongdoing. And a slew of hundreds of fe- former federal prosecutors said these pieces of evidence suggest uh, criminal conduct. That's not enough for Pelosi, and I don't think that's what's going to happen. Um, as one of my colleagues, who will remain nameless, at least for this setting, um, remarked, the president will. this presidential election will not hinge on impeachment proceedings. It will hinge on Donald Trump. Has he done enough to infuriate um, 
people that they get up and do something about it? Uh, or is his way of governing very blunt, very coarse, very pugilistic, appealing enough to people that um, they choose him again? And I think that's where we are. You know, when you say American public or the public, I think this public would say impeach. (laughs) We will see. In any case, um, you can see why I'm so uh, delighted to have these three incredibly talented writers here in Madison. And thank you all three so much. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.